Hello and welcome to another Cork and Taylor Wine Podcast. Luke Taylor here, and I am with our first ever guest who went to UC Davis and didn't graduate with one of those wine degrees. A BN Music. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. You know, we're, we're all encompassing at the Cork and Taylor Wine Podcast, so it's an honor and pleasure. I finally get to in, um, interview Violet Gergich. Violet Gergich, I guess, welcome to the Cork and Taylor Wine Podcast. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. So what did your dad think? Because I believe you're his favorite child, correct? Uh, his only and his favorite. You didn't have to answer it like that. So <laughs> yes, you're his favorite child. What did he think when you said you were going to go to UC Davis and study music? Well, actually, I told him I was going to study music, and he said, you're only going to UC Davis, and you better get that degree. <laughs> but uh, no, it was pretty funny. I'm very thrilled I, I actually studied what I did. Um, I have a passion for a great many things, music being one of them, and I got a great education at UC Davis, and yes, I did take some viticulture and enology classes. And- you play the harpsichord? The harpsichord, I do. Harpsichord, sorry, yeah. not harpsichord. So what is a harpsichord? So a harpsichord... Harpsichord, sorry. I'm, I'm going to okay. say it eventually. By the time, time this interview is done, I'm going to say it right. Mm-hmm. So it's um, essentially a, um, it's a keyboard instrument and looks sort of like a piano, but instead of having uh, felt um, hammers that hit the strings, it actually has little plectra that pluck the strings. So it's sort of like a mechanized lute. And it creates a really wonderful, gorgeous sound. And, you know, all these, all the works of Bach were written either for harpsichord or for organ. And uh, it's just a really fun instrument to play. Mm-hmm. How did you get into it? Well, somebody listened to me play Bach when I was in high school and told me that I needed to learn how to play it. And I had no idea what they were talking about. When I got to Davis and uh, started playing the piano, I realized that they actually had a class in harpsichord. So (laughs) I thought, this is perfect. I'm going to give it a try. And I thought I was just going to sit down and be great. But I was terrible. I had no idea (laughs) that it required totally different technique than the piano. So I went back to five-finger exercises and eventually got good at it. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my fi- my five finger exercises are probably more involved with food. But um, and then mm-hmm. you went to Indiana University. I did. I you did. went all the way from California. Indiana. Were you crazy? Um, absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, people people either go, well, why did you go to Indiana, or you got into Indiana. Um, their school of music is one of the top three in the country, mm. and so I wanted to study with a particular teacher there. And I never really spent any time in the Midwest, but I realized I loved it. Uh, it was just not only beautiful, I loved the seasons, but the people were so fabulous. And it was an international crowd, essentially. There were people in my class from, you know, Korea, from Australia, from Canada. Um, and it was just a wonderful environment. So I really enjoyed it. Awesome. So you obviously grew up around Gurga Chills, and uh, it's probably obviously in your blood. Your dad's probably one of the most well-regarded and well-known winemakers, especially after the Paris tasting of 1976. Mm -hmm. Um, What brought you back? Hmm. Well, I'd always wanted, you know, I suppose when somebody always tells you this is what you're going to do for your life. Being a Croatian, I was a bit stubborn. 
And uh, I realized I actually... You said it, not me. I know, I know. Well, you know, my I'd grown up with my dad in whatever winery he was working. So when he was working in um, at Robert Mondavi, that was prior to Chateau Montalena, his office was actually in the tower. So I felt like Rapunzel sort of walking oh. up those crickety stairs. And then at Chateau Montalena, I just had a wonderful time playing in the cellar and... Uh, by the lake. And so when we founded Gurga Chills, I was really disappointed that there wasn't a castle and there wasn't a lake. Uh, but I did start working here in 1977. So I wow. started in the cellar and uh, then in the laboratory. And after years of being really enjoying my isolated experience, my dad made me go out and start having to talk to people, which I had no idea how to do. How's that going so, for you? Oh, it's going great now. I'm really happy that he did that because, uh, you know, I learned how to speak in public. And yeah. my dad would tell me that he used to be painfully shy. And I never believed him because he was such an incredible speaker and just so outgoing and loved people. And, and, uh, People love him. Mm-hmm. So uh, I didn't believe it at first, but I do now. Yeah. It's entirely possible. Well, wine's not just about making it. It's also a, a wine make we've had on the podcast, and who's a friend of mine. He said the easy part is making the wine, and I'm not trying to knock winemakers. The tough part is selling it. Mm-hmm. And I think your dad did the right thing by getting you out to see because, you know, you, your last name mm-hmm. is part of this, you know, brand. Um, and you got to be out there and stuff like that. What is the best thing he probably taught you or the best advice oh. he gave you? I'm, I'm sure there's well, probably more than one, maybe there's, two. <laughs> there's a lot. So I'm going to say two things. Um, one is something that he was told by his father when he left at the age of 11 to go to school. And he was told to every day, do your best, learn something new and make a friend. And I heard that so often while I was a kid, and now I tell it to all my employees because everything you need to know in life, you can get from there. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other thing is to keep things simple. Keep things as simple as possible. Mm -hmm. And uh, simplicity is the key to everything. In simplicity, there is great complexity. So, for example, in Croatia, we love to cook, and there are some dishes that only have several ingredients. But everybody makes theirs taste different. It's all about the balance, the proportion, uh, the quality of the ingredients. How people put those things together is truly a work of art. Mm-hmm. And to do more with less is very difficult. So I use musical analogies a lot. And people think that the more notes you play faster the better a musician you are. It's actually much more difficult to play very few notes and connect them in a way that all of the connections, all of the silence between the sounds has great meaning and great complexity. A lot harder to do that. So that's one of the reasons I like to keep them simple. Yeah. It seems like you use a lot of your music background in the wine business on a day-to-day basis, I would say, probably. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's amazing. Because wine is, it's both an art and a science. And... You know, here we've had the philosophy, my, my father had this philosophy, which he's now transferred to my cousin, Ivo Yeramas, who's our winemaker, of literally getting the best grapes possible and then doing as little as possible to interfere with them. You yeah. know, we don't make the wine. You sort of guide it like, you know, parents guide their children. You know, you can't force kids to have a certain personality, but you can give them those rules and those right. values that assist. Are you a parent? I am a parent. How's, how's that going for you? Oh, my gosh. Well, I have to say, 
you know, the greatest <laughs> divide in this world is between people who have children and people who don't, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, even more than Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, isn't it, is, it, is, it is so different because your life entirely changes. It does, and, doesn't it? Yeah. And now I know why those baby on board stickers are there. It's not about the baby. It's about the fact that there's rabid parents are going to, you know, lash out at you if something happens to their precious child. Yeah. So while they're driving a minivan and texting and c- talking on the phone at the same time, right? Exactly. It's yeah. funny how um, I, I have three kids, and it was funny how people would give you advice, but they've never been a parent before. Mm-hmm. I always think that's funny, and it's the same in probably your business. Oh yeah, you've you've born and raised, you know, your family in this in this business, and they'll give you advice on how to run your winery, probably, and mm-hmm. what wines to make and labels and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, you you couldn't your your father couldn't have. Re- maybe hired a winemaker that was American or French. Huh? He had to keep it in the, the, the bloodline, huh? Well, actually, he's always had a team of winemakers, a team of enologists. So okay. not just one winemaker. Of course, he was always, you know, the one responsible. But he always had several enologists on hand who were, you know, essentially cellar workers and enologists. Mm-hmm. And for him, it was very important to find great people and to help educate them. And a lot of winemakers have gone on and made names for themselves who've mm-hmm. been here and worked with us. Yes. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you guys have uh, served presidents and queens. You've uh, best, uh, best Zinfandel in the world, wine mm. of the year. And it's amazing because I always thought this winery should have be called Hills of Gurgich instead of Gurgich Hills. Mm-hmm. How, how many family members are, are now involved? Because I know there's the, the Hill family and there's obviously the Gurgich mm-hmm. fam- family. Right. So we have, um, so Austin Hills um, and his sister Mary Lee. Mary Lee has several children as well who are not actively involved. And Austin Hills has two children, one of whom has worked for us uh, in various capacities in her vineyard as a brand ambassador. Um, and then uh, my child is... Uh, has been, you know, worked here over the summers, but uh, my cousin Eva's daughter, Maya, is actually now our export manager and also works with California Chains. So, so far, but, you know, Eva's got six kids. I only have one, <laughs> you know. And, Strength uh, in numbers, huh? Exactly. And the Hills family is also producing grandchildren who are very young still. So we're hoping that this uh, family-owned and operated business will continue for many generations to right. come. Right, right. Well, I, I figure if the more kids you have... It's like the Corley family. I think um, uh, Jay Sr. had seven kids, and I think three of them work in the business. So if he has six, there's a good chance one or two is going to be in here. Absolutely. So we've got two wines in front of us. We've mm-hmm. got the uh, Gurgach Hills Chardonnay, which um, I think your dad knows something about Chardonnay, obviously. Uh, let's, let's try that one first. So tell me a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. So Chardonnay is the wine we're probably most known for because of that 76 Paris tasting. Uh, There was also a great Chicago Chardonnay showdown, 221 of the best in the world. We came out number one. That was the 1977 um, Gergachil's Chardonnay. And over the years, we haven't really modified our style. It's always been very elegant, very crisp, very balanced, very food-friendly. And we're finding now that people are coming back to this style of Chardonnay. So even though my dad made Chardonnay a household name, California Chardonnay sort of morphed into a different kind of wine. People are just sort of shocked. I I was just doing a a virtual dinner, uh, I think it was yesterday or the night before, and the host was uh, saying essentially that, you know, he hates Chardonnay, except for ours. And I've heard that compliment so many times, not just with our Chardonnay, but with our other wines as well. Because I think our style is very, very unique and very consistent. 
We also have the benefit of owning all of our vineyards. So we have been entirely estate grown since 2003. And we started farming organically in 2000. Uh, we actually went through biodynamics for a while. And then lately, we have actually come to what my cousin believes is the best method, which is regenerative agriculture. So throughout all of these changes, we've managed to keep our style consistent. And uh, this, this one is particularly lovely, I think. We actually make three Chardonnays now. This one is our Milenko selection which is our sort of middle tier. It's mostly wine club wines. Okay. And uh, it has the benefit of actually being entirely aged in neutral oak. The Napa Valley tier, which is the one that you'll find out in restaurants, um, has a bit more oak than this one does. And we also have a Paris tasting commemorative Chardonnay, which um, is a little bit more intense and a little weightier than that as well. But what's interesting is that our use of oak is not as a flavoring agent. Our use of oak is the way people use salt when you cook. You add salt not to give something saltiness, you add it to actually enhance the flavors. And so the different levels and intensities of oak in these wines are based on the clones where these grapes come from, where they're grown. We have two, two vineyards, two cool vineyards in Napa, um, one in Carneros and the other in American Canyon. And then those, uh, within those vineyards, we have numerous different clones, which all have different you know, levels of acid to sugar ratio, different flavors. And so all of these combinations are treated based on how much, how the oak will balance with them. So this is an amazing wine. It's very incredibly structured, incredibly juicy, but yet also has a richness to it. Even though it's neutral oak, the oak still gives it body and texture, which gives it a super long finish. So one of, you know, I've talked about simplicity, and, um, you know, something can be very simple and yet very complex. I like to talk about balance as, I guess, an experience from my childhood. I used to um, walk on railroad tracks, and when I first would get on, it seemed like it was really hard to find that point of balance. Like it was so tiny. And then, but when I got it, when I got that balance, it seemed like I could do anything. I could lean forward or backward or side to side because that balance felt like infinity all around me. Mm -hmm. And so when you create that balance in wine, it creates a wine that can be so versatile. Every day it will be different. Um, in the glass, it will continue to develop and sit and just, you know, keep trying it as we're talking. It's going to change, and it just keeps getting better and better. If you were to magically have some left tonight or tomorrow morning, it would still continue to improve rather than oxidize and sort of drop away. I, lo I just, I love the nose. It's gorgeous. It is. And it's nice that... Mm -hmm. um, People are kind of waking up to what Chardonnay should be and has always been. Um, I feel stylistically, it's it's been you know Napa Chardonnay is known as kind of like that. I'm eating a wood chip or having a you know a ton of butter, um, and this is obviously just very elegant and, and obviously why it's you know it's done pretty well for itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's 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 really amazing. It is a universal sort of. Gosh, I don't like Chardonnay, but I like yours, and mm -hmm. it is a unique style, I feel. We've also stuck to it, whereas other people's style has sort of come and gone. And, you know, I remember that when people started making wine for wine critics, 
and there's a very definite kind of wine that is appreciated by wine critics, but we make our wines for people to drink and to enjoy, um, both you know, with food, sometimes without food, but those are different kind of wines. You know, when wines have subtlety and complexity, they're actually more difficult to make. I, I remember years ago, um, somebody had written a review of our Fumé Blanc, which I'm very, uh, love, very fond love, of. Love, 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 love. Love your Fumé Blanc. And they love were it. talking all these great descriptors and how elegant and complex and this and that. And this says, but not big enough for the price tag. And I was really shocked because wine critics should know that it's a lot easier to make a big wine and load it up with oak than to make something that has finesse and elegance. So definitely something that I am proud of and uh, very proud to represent. I was you know, talking about being painfully shy earlier mm-hmm. and I was terrified, like how can I sell something? I can't sell a thing. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is gonna be easy. All I have to do is show up, pour the wine, wait for them to taste it, <laughs> and then take their order. And that's exactly what happened. You know, the wine speaks for itself. Little do you know at some of these tastings, yeah, can I just get a little bit more? Because I'm really, I'm, I'm really not sure which bottle I'm going to buy. <laughs> yeah. That, yep. that Fumé Blanc of yours mm-hmm. is probably one of my favorite 1, 000, top 1,000 white wines. I'm just kidding. It's probably one of my top three. Yeah. I, my wife and I love that wine. Why, why did you guys name it Fumé Blanc? Well, my father was working for Robert Mondavi Shock. when Robert yeah. came up with a yeah. cash flow wine called Fumé Blanc. Yep. And he, he was the one who made that wine, the very first mm-hmm. one. And it became a hit. He personally loved it. And it is made in that same style. So the idea was to make a high, high quality style that was 100% Sauvignon Blanc and aged in oak. And what's interesting is even though, like this particular Chardonnay, our Fumé Blanc is aged in oak, but it's all neutral oak. Hmm. So it doesn't really give any oakiness, but what it does is it gives it this amazing viscosity and and beautiful body and just this super long finish. Most Sauvignon Blancs, you try, you know, you get a big burst and then it goes away. With ours, it goes on forever and Mm -hmm. ever and ever, and in fact, I remember um, the first time we gave um, Fumé Blanc to our um, son, who was about a year and a half old, I think. And he wasn't very, um, oh, I started much earlier than that. Oh, so, I'm sure. Yeah. But uh, he, was, uh, he didn't like things that were hot or spicy. And he did this thing like this when oh something was God. that. And so he tried a sip of the Fumé. And he made this horrible face. It's just everything screwed up. And you can tell he, he looked like he was in pain. And he went... Spicy. And then he opened his eyes and he waited and then he went more. Really? Yeah, loved it. And what was interesting is that there is sometimes a little bit of jalapeno in that Fumé Blanc. So I'm like, wow, he's developing that palate really early, mm-hmm. which is great. So. Yeah. Now he's up to about a case a week of drinking Fumé Blanc. Oh. I, I, I believe it. It's a delicious wine. <laughs> Stop talking about it. You don't even pour it for me, but yet we're talking I'm about it. I'm so that. sorry. Maybe later. Mm-hmm. Um, so because of the Croatian background, do, is your father partial to Hungarian oak? I know it's not Croatian, but to more Eastern European style oak, or is he more French? Is he more American or just doesn't really matter? Uh, it's pretty much been all French. Okay. Yeah, and not just when we started, we only had French Limousin oak. It was one kind, but over the years, you know, we've continued our relationship with this one particular cooper that has provided those for us, but also many others. 
my cousin, a number of years ago, um, experimented with various barrel producers and did some, some larger, some very small lots just to see which ones are. So now we have a good array of oak um, barrels and oak um, suppliers. Of course, none of whom I can pronounce because they're French. They have too many vowels in them. Like, why do they need all those vowels? All they're doing is screwing your mouth up. So, anyway. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. Mm-hmm. So we got the uh, Cabernet. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about this Cabernet. Okay. So that is also a Milienko selection that goes out to our wine club. It is the Rutherford Appellation. And we were actually inspired to, to bottle that on its own when uh, we had a group of distributors here, and my cousin Eva was taking them through the cellar, and we did a barrel sample of this one. He said, oh, I've got, you guys got to try this. And they're all like, this is really good. Not, it's not just really good. It's like really good now. And it has this wonderful, amazing softness to it and richness. And being here in Rutherford, it comes from the vineyard which surrounds us. And it, there's something here called Rutherford dust, which is a quality that Andrei Chelichev uh, named. And in fact, my dad used to work for him for eight years, so he's well aware of this. I've never heard that name before. I'm no. <laughs> an amazing person um, yeah. and an amazing vintner and an amazing teacher of others who was happy to share his knowledge with, with everyone. So, yes, it has that quality, those super fine tannins that are just dusty, beautiful. I wonder why it has that quality, just from Rutherford especially. I mean, you don't really taste it in Oakville or, um, you know, Howell Mountain. It's, it's mm-hmm. just like you get that Rutherford dust. Mm-hmm. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, it truly is. How big was... Um, mm. Do you remember the, the taste, like the ju- Judgment of Paris, 1976? I do, I do. I, re- I remember that my dad was shocked at the results because he had no idea that, the, <laughs> that this wine was in this thing and, and, and you know being Croatian who was born in a grew up in a communist country when um, the New York Times called him to ask him about it to interview him he was he was he thought he was in trouble because if somebody <laughs> in a communist country if somebody from the media calls you exactly. you know you're in trouble <laughs> so I would say that over the years the vastness of that um, and the impact of that tasting just have continued to grow mm-hmm. and uh it was, yeah, and unfortunately, Stephen Spurrier passed away this yes. last year. Yes, and we were very happy to be able to, in May of 2020, um, we were introducing the release of our Paris Taste and Commemorative Chardonnay. We were mm-hmm. able to get Stephen as well as George Tabor, mm-hmm. who was the um, journalist, the only journalist who showed up at the event and captured the results in Time Magazine, um, and also, um, oh. We're able to have a, how do you call it? Oh, a virtual tasting. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that that was probably our very first virtual event that we did. Wow! And it was it was wonderful to be able to connect them. And we'd never really known of that technology, but we were able to have him in England, uh, George from the West Coast. Um, uh, it was just amazing. Joanne Dupuy was able to join us mm-hmm. as well. She was the one who managed to make sure that the wines got to Paris in the first place. So yeah, it it was. It was wonderful to see have to see and have everyone together right. there. So when you watch Bottle Shock, um, that movie, it really does not depict what actually happened, right? Um, well, that's that's an understatement. I and, did I did have yeah. I did have Chelsea Barrett on the podcast. Wonderful. Who is Bo and Heidi's? Mm-hmm. Who you probably know, uh, mm-hmm. Bo and Heidi's daughter. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I flat out asked her. I said, "What percent is like fictional?" She's like ninety five percent. I said, "So that yeah. blonde wasn't your mom?" She's like, "I don't know." 
I'm like, your, your grandfather and father didn't box? She's like, no. Mm-hmm. I'm like, really? Well, I, I think as somebody in their family said, the, the only thing that's true about it is our people's names. So, you know, Gustavo Bambrilla, he's a real person, went on to become a winemaker. He was hired after the 1976 uh, Paris tasting um, mm-hmm. with a very different personality. And the wine never turned colors. The wine never oxidized and had to be you know, dumped. It wasn't so. found at a bar and someone bought it and no. it was his girlfriend or friend or whatever. Exactly. exactly. It's a good movie though. So it, it's a really fun movie and, you know, we, they actually had included my dad but in such a way that it was a completely different character so that's why people wonder why, why how come he's not in the movie and he says, well, first of all, the wine never turned color and that's not true and uh, so the depiction of him was just not, not really good. So how, how did that really happen? So a bunch of, did any people, like any of the wineries or vintners or winemakers go over to Paris? No. Or no? So it was the wines were sent, mm-hmm. shipped over there, they had the mm-hmm. tasting and then they found out probably Telegram or what have you, the results. Yes, yes. And actually what was interesting was there was a group, uh, that group that sort of, you know, took the wines with them, were, um, uh, they were touring in France along with Andrei Chelichev. And so my father was not there, Jim Barrett was there, but they got a call where they found out that the wines won. And prior to that, they'd been at a chateau, you know, where they were uh, told by the French, oh, someday maybe you'll be able to make wines of this quality. <laughs> and they just thought it was hilarious because they found out during the middle of lunch and then afterwards when they were in the bus, they just yelled and cheered and oh my God, just couldn't yeah. believe it. So, yeah. yeah. The, French, yeah. The, French, uh, the French were wrong, uh, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. So uh, after that, um, how did, I guess, the, Hill fam- the Hills family and the Gergich family get together and start this? So my father, after the Paris tasting, was courted by a lot of people. And Austin Hills was part of the Hills Brothers coffee family. He actually owned vineyards, and he'd been making wine under a Hills cellar label. So he was one of the ones who approached my father. And due to his background in business and finance and already having the vineyards, uh, they struck up a friendship and uh, formed a partnership. It also included Austin Hills' sister, Mary Lee Strebel. Um, she doesn't care to have her name, um, you know, she likes to be in the, in the background, but I always like to mention her because she is definitely, um, part of the family. Yeah. So we'll call it Gergich Hills Strebel. Correct. Mm-hmm. Estate. Exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Who were some of your dad's biggest influences? He was influenced by, gosh, many people. He was influenced by his father, starting there by both of his parents, uh, who taught him to work hard and work passionately and to follow his dreams. Um, Every person that he worked with, uh, he found something about them to absorb. So his first uh, experience was with Lee Stewart at Souverain Cellars, and he learned much from him, and then eight years with uh, Andrei Chelichev, uh, who, who was a great influence, and then with Robert Mondavi, and he... He was one of the things he was most proud of was when he broke grounds on July 4th. Uh, he came to Robert and asked Robert what he thought that if for some reason his winery wasn't able to crush grapes, would he be able to do it at Robert Mondavi? And Robert said, Of course, Mike, but you'll have no problem because I started, you know, late July and I was still ready for crush. Oh, but I think, you know, he always talked about um, Robert's generosity. You know, Robert had, you know, three kids involved in the business. My dad did want to get on, you know, head out on his own one day. 
And uh, when the partners from Chateau Montalene approached him, he went to Robert and said, Robert, what do you think about this? And Robert said, you know, Mike, this is a great opportunity. Um, you know, go learn. And if for some reason you don't like it there, please come back. And so he was very, very touched by that. And Robert also would regularly t bring his wines and take them to other vintners and say, hey, tell, tell me about my wine. You know, is there something I can do to make it better? Uh, so his, his generosity of spirit and uh, as well as, you know, everything was just amazing. So he's yeah, it's a huge a, influence. It's amazing how much Robert Mondavi uh, has put a stamp on Napa wines, let alone California wines. I mean, probably one in every two or three podcasts I do interviews, somehow Robert Mondavi comes up, whether it's Gary Eberly in Paso, mm -hmm. whether it's um, uh, Rebecca Laird, whose uh, father kind of got started by Robert Mondavi, mm -hmm. whether it's, um, I mean, you, you can go down the list and it's amazing. And, and he always believed in this philosophy and, it, and it's hearing all these stories, whether it's from you or others, it's whatever is good for the goose is good for the hen. And he definitely lived that mantra and it and it's good to see or great to see and it also obviously elevated nap into a, just another sphere who are some of your bar from your father in this wine in the wine industry who are some of your biggest influences oh my gosh hmm well that's i guess a tough question you know i always looked upon my dad as my biggest influence and uh you know, there's so many amazing vintners who have done so much. I just, I'm not sure I can single out any of them. Right. You know. Very political yeah. answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'll, it, it, for, for me, everyone, you know, nobody makes bad. Everyone is different. And, right. Um, years ago, I was in a winery-only CEO roundtable with a number of other vintners, you know, anywhere from 12 to 15 of us. And very much like, you know, YPO and... Right. People would, in other industries would be like, how can all of you wineries get together and like feel comfortable talking to one another? And I says, it's the best audience ever because as vintners, we know that working together benefits all of us. Mm -hmm. And so my combination of small wineries, medium wineries, and some very large wineries were able to, you know, help each other. You know, some product launches happened because of ideas that were generated in our roundtable. So that I, you know, and we're all very different personalities. So that variety, I would say, mm -hmm. is just truly essential for, for wine and the wine industry to continue to grow and develop. And well, I think also in wine, too, more so than other businesses, is, I mean, you probably grew up with some other f winery families. You went to school with, mm -hmm. you grew up with. I mean, you might not be best friends with them, mm -hmm. but you've got that association. And, you know, when people come to Napa, they don't just come to Gurgich Hills. You know, they're probably mm -hmm. coming to two, three, four tastings a day. They're coming for four or five days. Mm -hmm. And if you can help each other, you never know what you're going to get kind of in the back end, potentially, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So um, what would you say with everything going on in the world... How has it kind of changed your perspective of how you guys are doing things? I mean, you're probably not, for a while, you didn't have many in-person tastings. Um, you know, Zoom is becoming more prevalent. I absolutely hate Zoom. Mm -hmm. I hate doing podcasts on Zoom because it's like you can talk and then mm -hmm. you have to wait till they finish. So there's really no back and forth like this right now. But mm -hmm. what, how is kind of, in, in, as you run the winery, head of the winery, what have you, what are you seeing that you're going to do differently going forward? Uh, you know, with Gurga Chills? 
I would say everything that we did at the beginning of the pandemic and what we developed during pandemic will continue. I mean, we're known for having one of the you know busiest tasting rooms um, in California, and we were always terrified to have to really focus on by appointment seated appointment because you know we had so much revenue coming in through the tasting room. And that literally changed overnight. Once we started hosting people, we realized the safest way to do it was by, by appointment, seated, separate, outside, and um, everyone loved it. And it's been a huge success. And I know a number of other wineries that have gone through that same transition. One of the things that helped us uh, immediately in the pandemic was the fact that we sell everywhere. You know, We don't just sell to restaurants, we sell to grocery chains. And having those relationships in place enabled us to keep selling wine. Um, so absolutely. And, you know, I would say our e-commerce has certainly developed into, you know, a huge uh, source of revenue. And we've learned a lot from that. And I personally love Zoom. I have not. Been, oh, I, oh, I love oh, Zoom. Oh. I, I've been able to do multiple events on a single day. Well, that, I've been that, able but that's the thing. But yeah. uh, the one thing with Zoom is, mm. so I have a, uh, a golf podcast mm -hmm. and it's a friend of mine and I, Ben Curtis, who won the British Open. And we interviewed Jason Day. Well, Jason mm. Day is literally, so we're in, in, in Akron, Ohio, interviewing him at 9 a.m. And he's in Carlsbad, California at 6 a.m. Well, how would I interview him? Or if I'm going to interview, um, I'm supposed to interview Olivier Bernard, who's Domaine uh, mm -hmm. de Chevalier. How am I going to introduce him if I'm in Akron, Ohio, and he's in Bordeaux? So, and for you, what's great is the time time frame. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a 6 p.m. appointment or 6.30 tasting, let's say Zoom tasting mm -hmm. on a Friday night, that's 3.30 for you. Exactly. You're done by 5, 5.30. You have your whole Friday night with your family or whatever mm -hmm. you want to do. Mm -hmm. So that's, I, I, I can see the benefits of it. Well, the fact that, you know, saving so much time, not to mention money, uh, with travel, mm -hmm. travel, oh my goodness gracious, you know, the way, <laughs> the way we plan the months and, and just always getting oh, on a plane, crazy, huh? it's crazy. And I feel that we're so much more efficient. You know, yeah. we've always been about efficiency and, you know, this has really truly made so many of these connections more efficient. Yeah. I've done more business reviews because I can, I can do I can do them all day and all yeah. night long. Yeah. You know, my cousin as well. And usually we don't do events together. Mm -hmm. But, you know, with these virtual events, we've both been able to get on. He comes in from his house. I get on, mm -hmm. to, you know, from mine. And, you know, we're both able to, you know, talk in our own different ways about, mm -hmm. you know, our passion for what we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely has allowed, I think when you look at, because I have a distributorship, as you know, too, I think you're going to see less wineries travel. They're not going to need to. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I think, you know, we could, you could do zoom trade tastings and you could do stuff. Now you're still going to have to touch people and go out. But I think instead of being on the road, let's say half the year, let's just say we're mm -hmm. out half year, you might be a quarter of that. Now you might only be out a couple of weeks and now you, mm -hmm. you plan, you say, Hey, I'm going to hit this, this, and this, and I'm done. So I think it's going to make, I think wineries are becoming more efficient. Not that they weren't before, especially in the sales and marketing end because of it. So, mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I, I remember from the early days, you know, the, the greatest expenses in the old days used to be production, grapes, vineyards, you know, sales and marketing, almost nothing. Yeah. And Sam over sample, the <laughs> sample billbacks. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> or no billbacks whatsoever, you know. We had a director of sales and marketing whose main job was to answer the phone because that's how all the orders came in. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. And uh, so, yeah, that's definitely, it's become harder and mm -hmm. harder to sell. There mm -hmm. are more and more wineries. Um, they're all excellent. Mm -hmm. uh, 
so you know consumers ability to choose uh, there's just so much out there, mm-hmm. you know. And then with the arrival of the internet and all the information that you can get instantly, mm-hmm. uh, it's definitely made it easier for people to buy wine. Right. And uh, you know, I think one of the reasons that we've been so successful during this pandemic is because of our brand recognition. And people started going, you know, comfort food, mm-hmm. things that they know they loved and enjoyed. It's fun to experiment, but when you know you love something and there's so much stress going on then you reach back to those things that, you know, you know and love. And you drink more good wine. Yes. You drink more That's good wine. That's all good. So, mm-hmm. Well, you're going to stick, stick around with us for a couple more minutes. We're going to ask you a couple uh, hard-hitting questions on our bonus uh, kind of episode. Um, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review uh, wherever you get uh, or listen to your Cork & Taylor Wine Podcast. Follow us on uh, YouTube and Instagram. And uh, if you like us and want to help us out and keep us going, um, support us on Patreon, www.patreon.com. Cork and Taylor or backslash Cork and Taylor and we'll be back next week on the Cork and Taylor Wine Podcast and we'll keep on Cork and the Lighter Side of the